This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, plus the opportunity to vote each week on what upcoming topics we'll cover. While full membership gets you all that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the history and mechanics of U.S. empire and the military-industrial-congressional complex that gleefully perpetuates it. Clips today come from Counterspin, Intercepted, The Young Turks, The Extra Environmentalist Podcast, Ring of Fire Radio, and The Real News. In its March 5th front-pager, a Russian threat on two fronts meets an American strategic void, the New York Times passes along the worries of Washington. As expressed by a few military higher-ups, a guy from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a disembodied United States, worries that Trump doesn't have a coherent strategy for dealing with cyber and nuclear threats from Russia. The subhead warned, quote, Russia has ramped up its arsenal. U.S. has done little in response, close quote. So Adam Johnson asks in a piece for fair.org, what does a little response look like? Since taking office, the Trump administration and Congress, citing the Russian challenge as one of their rationales, have increased the military budget by about $80 billion, the largest increase since the aftermath of 9-11, and 70% greater than the entire Russian military budget of $47 billion. Additionally, Trump has reportedly asked for a black budget of over $80 billion for covert operations and pledged more than $1.2 trillion to building up the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal over the next 30 years, $200 billion more than Obama asked Congress for when he announced the plan two years ago. And Trump has, again, asked to increase the military budget by even more to $716 billion for 2019. The piece's focus is on what it says some experts believe is a lack of strategy, but still, leaving out the unprecedented amounts of money and resources Trump has spent on the military under the guise of combating Russia is a massive omission. In the nuclear sphere, the Times says, the Trump administration has yet to offer a strategy to contain or deter Russia beyond simply matching the weapons buildup. Here as elsewhere, the U.S. only responds to threats, never issues them, only matches Russia's weapons buildup, doesn't incite it. The fact that the U.S.'s most recent nuclear revamp began in earnest in 2014, before Donald Trump even announced his campaign, is not mentioned. At one point, the Times reporters offer the general perception of the entire government, declaring, quote, The United States is still uncertain how to make use of its cyber weapons after spending billions of dollars to build an arsenal. It is concerned that the Russians, along with the Chinese, the Iranians, and the North Koreans, could easily retaliate against any attack, striking American banks, utilities, stock markets, and communications networks. Close quote. It might help to know who exactly feels this way, but the story doesn't narrow it down. 
The effect of the article by intent or accident is to justify even more military spending as Trump and Congress plan yet another massive increase for 2019. And here we get it around paragraph 16. Quote, we must no longer think in terms of building just limited missile defense capabilities, concluded a report that was issued last year by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a Washington think tank. The United States should begin the journey to develop a next-generation missile defense. It called for pursuing a space-based kill layer that would try to shoot down swarms of enemy warheads and missiles, a step that would go beyond the Reagan administration's Star Wars research on space arms and no doubt prompt new rounds of reaction for Mr. Putin and the Russian military, close quote. So here the Times quotes CSIS doing what CSIS was set up and specifically funded to do push for the U.S. to buy ever more elaborate and exotic weapon systems. The story sets up an itch, and CSIS comes along to scratch it. There's a void in response to the Russian threat, and, oh, here's this strategy by a very official group with strategic right in its name, and it's calling for an obscene amount of spending on new missile systems that blow things up from space. Whoever could possibly build such a system? By sheer coincidence, five of CSIS's top 10 corporate funders, including Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, are positioned to do just that. As the New York Times itself reported in August 2016, after it obtained a cache of private emails from the organization, CSIS is little more than a lobbying arm of the weapons industry. Fair noted last summer talking about the think tank's promotion of the Lockheed-built THAAD missile system in South Korea that 30 out of 30 times when CSIS weighs in on the wisdom of a weapon system, it's in support. Fair asked the center if they'd ever publicly opposed a new weapons purchase or deployment, but they didn't get back to us. Two years ago, the New York Times insisted that the U.S. was lagging behind Russia in the Arctic, citing another CSIS report. How did that turn out? Well, in May of last year, the torrent of media articles hyping the Arctic gap paid dividends, with Congress allocating an additional $1 billion to the Navy's budget to pay for icebreaker ships. Those contracts aren't awarded yet, but market analysts like The Motley Fool tell us top CSIS donor Lockheed Martin is the obvious choice to build the new fleet. Now, CSIS releases a report saying the Russians are getting the better of us in cyber and nuclear. Outlets like The Times spread that message. Their reporting is then used as further evidence that we need more military spending, and that spending is lavished on CSIS's clients. Meanwhile, the group continues to be treated as a neutral, objective Washington think tank, and it's well-documented, including by the Times itself, conflicts of interest go unmentioned. We are sometimes told that the United States has never been an empire. I don't know if you remember this, but right after the launching of the Iraq War in 2003, Donald Rumsfeld was asked by a reporter, is this an imperial action? He said, empire? We have never been an empire. I don't know why you would even ask the question. 
And it's one of those great formulations because essentially what Rumsfeld does is not even say, not only say that we have never been an empire, but to rule out the validity of even asking the question. These, this is what I mean by the layers upon layers of forgetting, sanctioned forgetting, sanctioned ignorance about who we are. But if we think about this arc, this first arc that goes through slavery and settlement and colonization, what we see is that even at the end of the, the closing of the frontier, at the end of the 19th century, the United States then embarks on a new history of expansionism into the Caribbean and the Pacific. Almost immediately following the last Indian Wars, the U.S. would go on to fight the first major colonial counterinsurgency of the 20th century in the Philippines, which leaves some one million Filipinos dead over the course of a decade, a little over a decade, and introduce some things into the lexicon of, of military tactics, such as torture. And what was the torture that was favored in the U.S.-Philippine War? I wonder if anyone knows. The water cure. The water cure, which is essentially waterboarding. It engenders huge public outcry. Hearings are held about war crimes. This is what I mean about being condemned to repeat. I never learned about the Philippine War until I went to graduate school. Expansion into the Caribbean and the Pacific created a whole new map-making craze. And the maps, if you look at geography textbooks from the early 20th century, show something called Greater America. In Greater America, what you see is the Philippines, Parts of the Caribbean, the hemisphere over which the, Ameri over which the United States reigned as a kind of informal imperial power. And even in 1940, when the population of the United States was 132 million people, it held some 20 million people outside the United States in these overseas territories in a state of subjection. Combine that with the 12 million African Americans held in second-class citizen and the millions of Mexicans and indigenous people and Asians who are ineligible to become citizens or in various states of alienage. And you're still looking at a situation in which about 25% of the country, much like the founding, is in a state of subjection, governed without their consent. That, in my view, is the definition of what it means to be an empire. So 1940 is not that long ago. So if we're talking about something in the distant past, we're seeing how it carries forward. So that brings me to my second historical arc. And this will be somewhat more familiar to all of us. And that's the historical arc that begins with what we call the post-war period. Post-war. It's a funny kind of euphemism. We all know what we're talking about, right? World War II. The post-war. It's, it's an interesting formulation because we think we live in the post-war, but we live actually in the permanent war. And yet we narrate it back always to this moment of World War II. And why do we do that? Because World War II is thought of as a good war. But one of the reasons World War II is thought of as a good war is because it was a war 
that was fought against a monstrous evil, namely Nazi Germany. And it was a war that was fought in the name of democracy. And it was a war that was fought with the promise that we were entering a period in which there would be new norms of world behavior. Some of the documents that come out of that war are some of the greatest documents of the 20th century. The Atlantic Charter, which promises self-determination for all peoples. The New Deal Bill of Rights, in which the Roosevelt administration promises to build on the New Deal with a, a promise of guaranteed health care, housing, and employment for all Americans. A universal declaration of human rights as a charter for all the world's people, a document that's meant to stand against the evils of racism. There's even what the U.S. administration called in the run-up to World War II a good neighbor policy towards Latin America, where there's a recognition that the history of military intervention and gun, gunboat diplomacy is now illegitimate. Sumner Wells, who's the Undersecretary of State in World War II, uses this exact phrase in 1942. He says, we are witnessing the death of white supremacy on the planet. That is 1942. That's a U.S. State Department official making that pronouncement about the collapse of the French Empire in Southeast Asia, the collapse of the Dutch Empire, the impending collapse of the British Empire, and saying there's a new world a-coming. The new world a-coming was a book written by Roy Otley, who was an African-American journalist in Harlem. The new world a-coming was going to be the world that saw the end of fascism, the end of colonialism, and the end of racism. These were the promises that came out of World War II. And even imperial statesmen like Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of War during World War II, uh, who wrote a very interesting essay right at the end of the war called The Challenge to Americans, said we are entering a period in which the United States must have a new relationship with the world and a new relationship to itself and to its own history. But not so fast. So what happens? Well, of course, before the ink was dry on the Atlantic Charter, and you can go to the archives and see these notations that Winston Churchill, a co-signatory with Franklin Roosevelt, made in the margins, not to apply to the dominions of the British Empire. <laughs> and then if you read the charter, one of the interesting things about it is we all know it as the document that promises self-determination. Of course, these exceptions are going to be smuggled in. But you don't know, probably, that the fourth point of the Atlantic Charter, and maybe you'll fact-check me on that, and it's not exactly four, maybe it's five, is the access of all nations to all the resources of the earth. So what is that about? That's about we're going to be, con we're going to be able to continue in spite of the prospects of self-determination to be able to get what we need for our capitalist machine. Now, within the U.S., there's a still deeper debate about the nature of post-war power. Henry Stimson, 
who's getting quite old and has witnessed the dropping of the atomic bomb on the Japanese and is filled with remorse and regret about it, enters a cabinet meeting with Harry Truman right after Roosevelt's death. And he says to Truman, we must share information about nuclear weapons with the Soviet Union. If we don't do so, we will encourage an arms race of a feverish and desperate character. Stimson goes on to say, the only way to make someone trustworthy is to trust them. It's a really remarkable moment. Henry Wallace, who was at that time the Secretary of Commerce and who had been the vice president before he was ousted in the Roosevelt administration, called it the most dramatic cabinet meeting in all his years in Washington. Wallace argued for Stimson's position, as did Dean Acheson, although Acheson would later recant his position. The person that opposed them, though, was the Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal. And this is what Forrestal said. And this was the argument that won the day. He said, the Russians are essentially like the Japanese. They are oriental in their thinking. And they are only attuned to the language of force. The bomb and the knowledge that produced it are the property of the American people. And Forrestal went on to make another similar kind of argument about the Japanese-mandated islands that the United States had won during the war. He said, these islands must be kept in perpetuity, for they were won through our blood. And so here you have the moment where you've promised the end of colonialism and the end of white supremacy, and what are you doing? You are seizing new colonies, which are then going to be the staging ground for American nuclear testing for the next decade at the expense of all the Pacific Islanders who live across that region. It's Forrestal's protege, George Kennan, who would author the single most influential policy leading to almost half a century of Cold War. And the policy, of course, is known under the term containment, But underneath the containment of the Soviet Union, Kennan offered a more brutal and frank rationale. And he said this in a policy memo that he authored in 1948. We have 50% of the world's wealth and 6.3% of its population. Our task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our security. Now, does that sound like self-determination? Does that sound like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Does that even sound like a New Deal Bill of Rights? No, it doesn't sound like any of those things.
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off, plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code left. That's madison-reed.com and use promo code left. The National Priorities Project uh, came up with some stunning numbers. They crunched the the numbers and and did some good math on our budget in America. And I think that it's important for you to get this context. So Jake Johnson at Common Dreams writes about it. They explain the average taxpayer contributed $3,456 to the military in 2017. That's according to Lindsay Koshkarian. Compared to $80 that went to welfare programs and just $39 to the Environmental Protection Agency. So there's two layers to that. One is look at the difference. In order to protect our air, our water, make sure we don't get poisoned, 39 bucks. In order to wage wars, and nobody's attacking us, nobody in Syria attacked us, we're attacking there, Yemen, and the list goes on and on, right? We got attacked all the way back in 2001, and now it's 2018, 17 years later. That war is endless. The people that originally attacked us are long gone. Now there's new group after new group because of all the new aggressive wars that we've started. And in order to pay for those wars, each one of us, that's the second stunning part. Each one of us, on average, is giving $3,456 to the Defense Department. Most of it, or a lot of it, going to military contractors. Did you agree to that? Are you happy with that? You want to take $3,456 of your hard-earned money and spend it on defense and only 39 bucks to protect the environment, make sure your kids are safe? That's insanity, let alone the $80 to welfare and the list goes on. All right, in an analysis published last month, national priorities estimated that 23.8 cents of every dollar in taxes paid in 2017 went to Pentagon and military spending. So take a look at your own taxes. 24% of it, just take it and give it to military contractors. Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, 11 cents goes to the military contractors alone. So yes, the Defense Department also spends money on employees, on the troops, on a couple of other areas, obviously. And hence, they hide behind the fact that Hey, support the troops, support the troops. But do you know that um, troops that start in at the ground level often get paid $19,000 a year? The money isn't going to them in in mass. No, 11 cents of every dollar that you send in on your taxes, 11% of all the taxes you pay goes straight to defense contractors' pockets. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, uh, and Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon, and all those guys. This is what corruption looks like. It isn't to quote unquote protect us. It isn't for our defense. It's because those guys 
again, legally bribe our politicians. They give the money, campaign contributions, independent expenditures, and yes, jobs after they retire. They also give the generals jobs after they retire. And lo and behold, they get billions of dollars taken out of our pockets and right into theirs. Paul Kawika Martin for Peace Action says, Congress appropriates more for US military spending than the next eight countries combined. But year after year refuses to adequately invest in access to quality education and healthcare for millions of Americans, infrastructure spending and alternative energy. So every time they tell you, oh, there's nothing we could do. We can't afford it, we can't afford it. And if you try to get kids a college education like Bernie Sanders proposed, oh, so impractical. That is a minuscule percentage of the Defense Department budget. It's a minuscule percentage of what we send straight into military contractors' pockets. But for those priorities, for your priorities, can't afford it. Well, every time you hear you can't afford it, understand that it's a lie. They can afford the tax cuts, $1.9 trillion hole in the deficit. They can afford endless money going to military, military contractors. But when it comes to protecting your environment or your kids or your health, all of a sudden they can't afford it. Last fact for you guys, again, Lindsey Koshkarian for National Priorities saying a 10% cut in spending on military contractors would provide enough money to hire 395,000 elementary school teachers or provide health insurance for 13 million children. That's not all defense spending, that's just 10% of the money going specifically to military contractors. So a tiny sliver of the defense budget would pay for 395,000 teachers. And you got teacher strikes all across the country because they're not getting pay raises, their health insurance is going up, the inflation is going up, our teachers are suffering and we won't even cut 10% of the money going to military contractors. That's what our priorities are because our politicians are fundamentally corrupt. Regain Democracy, wolf-pack.com slash go. We'll put the link down below. Get involved, volunteer, donate, do whatever you're gonna do, but fight back against the system because they don't care about us. We gotta get our government back. First thing we need to do is actually start by admitting that America has an empire. Until quite recently, historically speaking, that was not a big deal. Most people were totally cool with that in the not too distant past. But ever since the Second World War, when imperialist became a standard title of abuse, America has been really, I think, the first empire in history that has gone around pretending that it's not an empire. The British Empire was totally open about it, the Spanish Empire before that, all these other empires in history, which have followed the same course as ours, have been very straightforward being what they were, but we get all mealy-mouthed in America about the concept of empire. And so the first thing we need to do is grapple with the fact that we have troops stationed in 140 different countries around the world. They are not there for their health. And the fact that they are there has something to do with the fact that the 5% of us who live in the United States get to use 25% of the world's energy resources and 33% of its raw materials and, and industrial product. Not because other people don't want these things, 
But because we have troops in 140 different nations, we uh, tend to engage in attitude adjustment rather enthusiastically when somebody objects to sending over their goods and their raw materials and their energy in exchange for what amount to valueless IOUs that we send back. <clears throat> so let's start with the fact that we have an empire. Again, between the two world wars, it was very straightforward. People were talking about how America ought to have an empire. Successful countries all have empires. We need to get one, too. Let's stop being mealy-mouthed about it. So that's the first step. The second step is to talk about what an empire actually is. And there we get into the whole use of the term empire with a capital E and no article to mean well, whatever the speaker doesn't like. You, you must have seen the various books and so on out there about empire just in the abstract. And people fighting empire. No, not any particular empire, you understand. Just the, the sort of abstraction. If this reminds you of George W. Bush's war on terror, it should. Again, the idea of going to war against an abstraction. It's not a productive approach. Everyone thinks of empire. When you think of empire, you think of either the Roman Empire or the empire that you think of in Star Wars, like this evil behemoth, right? Yeah, we can't be the evil galactic empire. The other guys have to be the evil galactic empire. We're the good guys. We're the rebels. Except for the last century, we haven't been. We basically took over from the British Empire. And we're the empire now. Now, this, this has some problems. There are ethical issues. There's all this kind of stuff. But the other major problem with empire is that empires fall. It's the most reliable thing about them. They don't last. And when a country gets used to living high on the hog as a result of having an empire, and then it goes away, it's a rough road. It's a really rough road. And that's basically where we are right now. So then how does one become an empire and how does it work when you are the empire? Like, how do you assume the empire role? Well, an empire is basically a wealth pump. It pumps wealth out of a circle of subject nations into the imperial nation. And so the imperial nation gets rich and everyone else goes broke. It, it is very often forgotten, for example, that before Britain took over India, India was actually the richest country in the world. Literally, it was responsible for some stunningly large fraction of the world's total gross domestic product. By the time the British Empire finally ran aground, India was nearly the poorest country in the world, and Britain, which had been a little backwater, mostly known as a source of codfish, had become the center of the global economy. So that's what empire is. An empire is a wealth pump. It's a way to make one country rich at the expense of other countries. You normally get there by having a lot of soldiers in the right place at the right time, whatever military technology is, is involved. You know, we did not take over from the British Empire because we, like, won a, a popularity contest or uh, could sing really well or something like that. The process of taking over from the British Empire was called the First and Second World Wars. There were a variety of nations that wanted to elbow their way into the role, notably Germany. And we pounded the crap out of them and took the role for ourselves. That's how empires happen. Every empire is backed by military force, and that's something else that needs to be remembered. The United States right now spends ballpark as much on its military as the rest of the world put together. And this is not because we are a global policeman, a global force for good. It's because we have an empire, and empires are expensive. You have to have aircraft carriers or whatever the technology of du jour is. You have to have them all over the place. You have to have those bases in 140 countries around the world. You have to have big, established military forces ready to engage in attitude adjustment if anybody challenges the flow of wealth inbound. Now, the thing about the United States empire post-1950 is everything from the international monetary system 
system to our thinking about economics and the kinds of economic PhDs that were educated in the United States and went around the world to create the policies of countries from India to Europe and the idea of American business. All of this was oriented around ideas of how the U.S. economy developed and what it created. And so now that the American empire is failing, it's creating a power vacuum, not just from military power, but also economic power and currency power. How do you see the world reorganizing around this power vacuum that's being left by America's decline? Well, the crucial vacuum is actually one step further. It's an intellectual vacuum. Because and empires attract double talk. That's the case of the American empire and every empire before then. And the intellectual double talk that governs today's economic thinking is a great example. When the U.S. and several European countries sponsored the recent coup d'etat in the Ukraine, for example, the immediate response of the new government was, well, we're going to have to engage in a big austerity campaign that's going to make the Ukraine economically profitable again. Every time that austerity process has been imposed on a country, it has resulted in national bankruptcy. It does not do what it's supposed to do. What it does is funnel wealth back to the imperial center. In this case, the United States with chunks for its inner circle of European allies. So you've got to get past the double talk before you can even start figuring out what's going on with the economic situation. Right now, the United States produces almost nothing in economic terms. It produces some raw materials, okay? We produce a fair amount of oil and natural gas. We produce a fair amount of agricultural products. We don't have an industrial plant anymore, hardly to speak of. Most of the goods that we use in America today are imported. So it's important not to get too stuck on the economics because the economics are subsidiary to the political and military realities that mean that we can send out IOUs, we call them treasury bills which are never going to be paid off, and other people send us actual concrete real wealth, like oil and computers and cars and things like this. So in terms of the vacuum, the vacuum, if you will, the giant sucking sound is the sound of U.S. empire sucking wealth from the rest of the world. When that breaks down, that flow is going to stop. And that means that people here in the United States are going to have to get used to getting by on a lot less wealth than they're used to. Ballpark, assuming that we end up with about our fair share per population, about an 80% pay cut for all of us. While the rest of the world suffers, depends on where you are, of course, because there will be a new imperial power. Probably at this point, it's looking like China, but we'll see. And they'll end up getting the disproportionate share of the world's wealth, and other countries will go up and down depending on how they work things out with the new imperial power. So it is really a complicated process. But the the thing that I would stress here is that the economics actually is secondary. Political and military realities trump economic realities. Who has the power? Who can tell you you're going to take T-bills and just stick them in your central bank because we tell you to. You mentioned before that recognizing that we are in an empire is something that the United States has really yet to do in a lot of ways. Other empires in the past have freely associated themselves with empires, saying we the holy, we're the Holy Roman Empire. We are the British Empire, the empire in which the sun never sets. Irishmen used to insist that was because God himself would not trust an Englishman in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are Americans so reticent to declare their empire and their domination of the world? Well, partly I think it's because we've got this ideology of being the underdog that we inherited from back when we were rebels against the world's big empire in 1776. Back in the Cold War, 
The Russians used the term imperialist as their favorite weapon for beating up on everyone else, on, on their national enemies. We were the imperialist running dog lackeys, blah, blah, blah. And so you didn't talk about empire because it kind of played into Russian propaganda. But I'm not really sure why it is. You'd think the neoconservatives of all people who practically put on jackboots and strutted around, you know, funky uniforms, the neoconservatives should have just gone right out there and said, yes, we're an empire. Why don't we wallow in it? A few of them did. Neil Ferguson is a great example. He's done several books where he's talked about how wonderful empires are and how you have an empire and the world is relatively at peace, which isn't true. The imperial nation and its immediate circle of allies are in peace, but you've got the British Empire, the British Army and Navy were constantly pounding the crap out of other countries all over the world. But it certainly looks good if you're in London. But most of the neoconservatives have just been as mealy-mouthed as everyone else. They, they need to get out there, you know, put on the togas or, or what have you, and, and be forthright about it. I think it's past time. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. To get a, si a sense of, of, of the size or the scope of the Pentagon budget, just put it into context for us as to um, just how big the Pentagon budget is relative, I don't know, I guess to our entire budget. Well, you know, there are different ways of counting the Pentagon budget. We used the number that is the the seven hundred and sixteen billion, which is the um, appropriated amount for the Pentagon budget, plus you know what they started in the Bush administration, the additional funds for uh, ongoing wars. They separated those out because they want to keep the budget seeming small. So it's, it's, uh, it's like a contingency budget, but you know, you're going to spend it. So, uh, so it brings it from about 680 something billion to, um, 716 billion. It's actually a lot larger because you add in things like, uh, Homeland Security, veterans, uh, benefits, which are the result of wars, the, um, the, uh, amount of interest on war debt, which is most of our debt. And, uh, you know, we fund our wars, uh, with 
borrowing because they don't want to have people face the, the true costs of wars. So, you know, if you add all of those things together that are that are military or national security related, including the intelligence agencies, you come up with more like one point three five trillion dollars a year. So uh, we have a um, uh, an entity that um, spends one point three five trillion dollars a year, more or less. Um, you know, and we could quibble over uh, several hundred billion dollars, I guess, but um, we don't have to, right? Because this is all money that is accounted for. Of course, uh, it is our uh, biggest expenditure. Um, that is, um, at the very least, not self-financing. Um, what, um, what are the, uh, I mean, what are the auditing well, you know, uh, procedures? You know, another way that people might relate to this is that the total collections for uh, income tax and corporate taxes in the in the year this year is one point three trillion dollars. So. If you're talking about the pay as you go, uh, that entire, all the taxes collected by the United States, um, for income and corporate taxes pay for military. <laughs> There's nothing else left. Okay. So, all right. Let's get to the, uh, to the, to the nub of this though. Um, we've got, um, when you have this amount of money, you would imagine the controls on this money and the ability for those who are spending it and those who are um, uh, allocating it to know where it's going. You would imagine it's pretty um, uh, intense and there's a lot of scrutiny, but that's not been the case at all, has it? No, in fact, it's completely the reverse of what you'd expect. The Pentagon has for, you know, this guy, Undersecretary Shanahan, uh, when he announced that the Pentagon had failed its first ever audit uh, for, uh, by outside auditors, uh, which they did uh, last week, um, he said, but you should, you know, we should be uh, given credit for having uh, gone through the audit. But what he didn't say is that for since uh, 1990, the Pentagon has been stonewalling the uh, congressional order in this in what was called the uh, the um, CFO Act that required every federal agency of the United States government to create auditable uh, accounts that could be audited by outside auditors every year. And every agency of government has come into compliance except for the Pentagon, which has steadfastly refused to do it. And only now, you know, this this first year, uh, Congress finally lost patience and just didn't demanded it. And they, they allocated $900 million to do this audit by big outside auditing firms. And uh, predictably, as, as I was told by the uh, head uh, monitoring that for the GAO, uh, before the audits were in, he said they're not going to be able to do it. They're, they won't be able to do it for years. Um, and they'll just come up with a list of thousands of deficiencies that have to be fixed. And that will take years to fix if they even do it. So, so, right. here, so, so you have the biggest line item in our government um, is uh, we don't know what they're doing with the money. All right, you got to help me out here because I, I, I'm not I'm not uh, totally clear about the process of an audit. When they go through, they're saying there's so many deficiencies that they can't even begin to actually do the audit itself. They've basically tried to do a preliminary audit, and there's not even the tools to assess 
Um, what? How much money is flowing where? Is that basically yeah, me, what it let is? Let me give you an example from the private sector. If General Motors had an audit, or uh, or Ford or or Apple or something had an audit, um, as they are required to do every year, and the auditor found something wrong in some part of their budget, and had to issue a uh, a letter of. Um, you know, uh, criticizing something in the audit and said, we can't pass this audit because of, you know, this particular category of the budget and this particular uh, um, line item. Um, that would be a disaster for that company. Its stock would plummet, um, depending on the, on the significance of the problem that was uh, that was mentioned in the what's called an, a letter a comment letter in the audit uh it could bankrupt the company you know drive its drive its uh, debt into junk or any kind of thing like that but there would be a a, a financial statement uh you know a collection of financial statements on that company and you'd be able to look at all the numbers except for the you know and you'd even see the ones that were being questioned by the auditor they can't do that with the pentagon because everything is screwed up because the the no, so many of the numbers in the pentagon's financial statements are made up Okay, um, I want to just put a pin in that because uh, I want to talk about these made up numbers. But just to be clear, that the Pentagon um, is not even uh, organized enough in terms of its books, essentially, to be as bad as um, a company that would plummet in stock value. In other words, like if they got better. They would be um, a company that was going to essentially have all their uh, debt turned to junk and everybody would stop lending them money because they can't be trusted to organize their money. And that's if the Pentagon got better. Yeah, they're like Enron on uh, steroids, basically. A new Pentagon study explores whether U.S. hegemony is coming to an end. The U.S. Army War College's Strategic Studies Institute says, quote, while the U.S. remains a global, political, economic, and military giant, it no longer enjoys an unassailable position versus state competitors. In brief, the status quo that was hatched and nurtured by U.S. strategists after World War II and has for decades been the principal beat for the Pentagon, is not merely fraying, but may, in fact, be collapsing. Well, joining me is someone who has seen the status quo from the inside. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson is a former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, and currently a distinguished professor at the College of William and Mary. Colonel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So, this report is interesting, uh, lamenting the potential collapse of the status quo. Uh, you've read this study. Tell us about it. 
I think it's an acknowledgement, uh, and I might say I'm rather ashamed of the Pentagon if this is the first time they've really thought about it. And the Army War College is, as you pointed out, sort of the Pentagon's in-house, the Army's in-house think tank. Rather ashamed of them from, from coming to this realization so late. That's one point. This has been happening since the end of the Cold War. It's quite obvious that it was going to happen. Because since 1972, markedly and dramatically, American power has been diminishing for two reasons. One, because others' power, China uh, leading the pack, if you will, has been growing. And two, because the United States power has, in fact, been diminishing, whether it's the power of the dollar, the power of our economy with uh, unprecedented debt. We have a debt now that no human uh, concoction in 5,000 years of human history has ever contemplated. I'm not even sure that we can contemplate it correctly today, witness the Congress being able to do absolutely nothing about it. But we are in a situation that was quite apparent with the end of the Cold War and certainly in the decade after the Cold War. So to come to the realization that power is shifting in the world at this point is sort of a blinding flash of the obvious. And I'm a little bit ashamed of the guys for taking so long to get to it. The second point, though, that I make about this study is it's alarming sort of the sky is falling nature with regard to what I would call what built up in the post-Cold War era, uh, the post-World uh, War II era, rather, it, during the Cold War, that being the military-industrial complex and all that it, uh, it, it has come to mean today, special interests writ large, and the fact that the military, the study at least, is lamenting the passing of this which is to say that they're lamenting the, pass, uh, lamenting the passing of their cash cow, that this war and this, this, this Cold War and the wars that follow it in 9-11 and so forth and so on, the invasion of Iraq, have all been uh, the, a cash cow for the military. And they're now lamenting the passing of this cash cow, and they want to reestablish it. They want to you know, move out swiftly and reestablish uh, all the needs in the world and the U.S. hegemony in the world that brings that cash cow into play big time. That's disturbing. Hmm. Now, if this is a new uh, epiphany for the Pentagon, uh, what do you think prompted them to come to this realization now as opposed to before? Because obviously there have been many policy papers of this type in the past. Well, it's a very professional use, if somewhat pedantic of one of the most powerful elements of politics, fear. Uh, if you frighten the American people into thinking that somehow this shift of power in the world is ultimately to their disadvantage, uh, even overwhelmingly to their disadvantage, rather than looking at it as something that was inevitable and that would have to be dealt with over time and could be dealt with and managed adequately and maintain their security and their prosperity. If you, on the other hand, point out to them that this is extremely a dangerous development, perilous development even, existential development even, and that they need to give more money to the Pentagon, yet more billions of taxpayer dollars to the Pentagon and to the military instrument and to Lockheed and to Raytheon and so forth and so on, then that's their, you know, that, that's their cash cow. They're afraid they're going to lose it, so you use the politics of fear to frighten the American people, to frighten their representatives in the Congress and get more money. It's that simple. There's nothing complex about this. It's too simple, as a matter of fact. 
So that's interesting. Uh, as they lament the decline of the uh, you know military industrial complex, their answer is not maybe to abandon the approach of propping it up, but actually to advocate pumping even more resources into it. Yes, absolutely. And, and this latest thing by the president, if the president initiated it, maybe H.R. McMaster initiated it, uh, maybe Jim Mattis initiated it, this study of the uh, industrial base and so forth. This is part and parcel of this. Uh, let's scare the American people. Let's tell them that we can't build ships that Donald Trump wants for his 350 plus ship Navy because we've let our shipyards atrophy. Let's tell them that we can't build the airplanes that we might need to build because we've let that talent atrophy. Oh, Lockheed would salivate at that. Let's have more F-35s. Let's have more of these bombers the Air Force wants to buy. They're going to be a billion dollars a piece. Let's have more of this stuff. Uh, this is the way you frighten the American people into uh, giving you what you want. And uh, again, I'm ashamed of the, of the Pentagon for letting this kind of strategic thought come out at a time when they're already so flush with cash that their slush fund, for example, is being used by the land forces, uh, the Army in particular, to feed into its readiness problems, particularly with people, and actually buttress the all-volunteer force, for example, which is a failure. Uh, it's an ethical, moral, and physical failure, and yet we won't even talk about it. So these are the real problems the military confronts, but all it wants is more money. Trump is a product of the American political system. When you strip down or strip away the buffoonery and the arrogance and the lies, and you look at the U.S. position in the world on foreign policy, Trump is basically in line with the political strategy of the empire politicians, of the elite. The world has long watched in horror as the United States has pursued its imperial march. Trump has made it okay to openly mock it. And while Trump does indeed lie about anything and everything, he simultaneously engages in the big lies, the big lies that unite Democrats and Republicans. That is why America will always choose independence and cooperation over global governance, control and domination. I honor the right of every nation in this room to pursue its own customs, beliefs, and traditions. The United States will not tell you how to live or work or worship. We only ask that you honor our sovereignty in return. You see right there, this is a big lie. It's a lie that has been told throughout the history of the United States. The U.S. has never honored the right of nations to pursue their own customs and beliefs. The U.S. invades countries, sanctions them, bombs them, overthrows governments, interferes in elections, assassinates people across the globe. This nation was founded on violating the sovereignty of indigenous people and then forcing enslaved Africans to build its infrastructure. These are the lies that bind Trump to his predecessors. These are the permanent lies of the ruling elite of this country. We have secured record funding for our military, $700 billion this year and $716 billion next year. Our military will soon be more powerful than it has ever been before. 
This is a horrifying declaration. It's an abomination. It's an abomination that it's true. But is it because of the dangerous deviousness of Trump? Did Donald Trump undemocratically seize public monies to build his unaccountable war machine? Let's look at the vote tally on this whopping military bill. More than two-thirds of House Democrats voted for it, and 85% of Democrats in the Senate voted to give Trump this massive military budget. And to drive home the passion for militarism and empire, this bill was ceremoniously titled the John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act. How is this justifiable to these Democrats who tell us every day about the unique danger that Donald Trump poses? The same could be asked of all those powerful Democrats who voted to give Trump widespread surveillance powers and capabilities. Now, what they'll tell you is the military needs it, that we're supporting the troops, the CIA and the NSA, they need it. They're keeping the homeland safe. You know what? That's bullshit. This is all about the politics of empire, imperialism, and in some ways, crowd control. Here we have yet another example. Trump bragging about pulling out of the UN Human Rights Council because he was enraged that nations actually voted to condemn Israel or that they refused to be a mouthpiece for Washington. So the United States took the only responsible course. We withdrew from the Human Rights Council and we will not return until real reform is enacted. For similar reasons, the United States will provide no support and recognition to the International Criminal Court. As far as America is concerned, the ICC has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, and no authority. The ICC claims near-universal jurisdiction over the citizens of every country, violating all principles of justice, fairness, and due process. We will never surrender America's sovereignty to an unelected, unaccountable, global bureaucracy. America is governed by Americans. We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. All of this sounds like crazy, unhinged nationalism, authoritarianism, laws for thee but not for me, and that is what it is. And Trump is brazenly attacking the notion that international law applies to the United States. But this wasn't Trump's idea, and it wasn't John Bolton's idea. This was a bipartisan position going back decades. In fact, in 2002, when the U.S. Senate voted on a bill that would authorize the U.S. military to invade the Netherlands if any U.S. personnel were arrested on war crimes charges, it passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. As we said in an earlier episode of the show, it was known as the Hague Invasion Act. You know who voted for it? Joe Biden did. Hillary Clinton did. Chuck Schumer did. Dianne Feinstein did. In fact, 44 Democratic senators voted for a bill that would literally authorize the U.S. military to invade another NATO country to stop a war crimes prosecution of U.S. personnel. Yes, Trump's declaration about international law is disgusting, but let's be honest. In that vote, just 26 Republicans joined their Democratic colleagues in voting yes. And the Democrats controlled the Senate at the time. And this was a bill sponsored by lifelong racist and bigot Senator Jesse Helms. And the Democrats supported it. This isn't Donald Trump extremism. This is the politics of empire and so-called American exceptionalism. 
I'm deeply concerned that we are really losing our minds in this country, with so many people falling victim to this notion that the U.S. was somehow this bastion of justice and freedom and democracy in the world until the orange-hued monster took power. It's just not true. And when the dust settles on this moment in history, this narrative is going to ricochet into the future. Trump's presidency will be like a ship that, if sunk, would place all the blame for the rot of this empire on board with it. We say a lot on this show that history matters, context matters, facts matter, and they do. But it does a disservice to those people who believe in justice and truth and peace to pretend like Trump is somehow the great anathema. In some ways he is, but not when it comes to the politics of empire. It's important that we work hard to make those distinctions— no matter how widespread and group-thinky the flashy story is about Trump ruining America's greatness. If we want to change this country, confront its injustices, we have to always return to history and context to understand how we got here. We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin, highlighting the weapons industry lobbyists being treated as an unbiased source while they lobbied for more weapons. Intercepted played a speech by Nikhil Paul Singh, giving a fresh analysis of the history of empire in the U.S., and we heard a portion of that. The Young Turks broke down how much the average U.S. taxpayer spends each year on war. The Extra Environmentalist podcast talked with John Michael Greer about the mechanics of empire and the pumping of wealth from the powerless to the powerful. Ring of Fire Radio discussed the first ever audit done on the Pentagon and its unsurprising failure. The Real News talked with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson about the Pentagon's request for more money in the face of a collapsing empire. And finally, we just heard Jeremy Scahill on Intercepted once again lay out the critical narrative that although Trump is an aberration in many ways, his imperialistic actions are right in line with tradition. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips on the politics of military arms sales, and an extended bit of the conversation from the extra environmentalists about the rise and fall of empires. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron in Philly. Happy New Year. I just wanted to call with a couple of responses to your episode on progressive internationalism. I've been an internationalist pretty much as long as I've been politically aware, which uh, was you know, from some time in the Clinton administration. And it's great to hear other people really starting to, to take the idea seriously and really start to develop uh, some thoughts around it. I really agree with the points that Yanis Varoufakis was making throughout the episode that you know what we need is a new narrative and a new story that people can plug into and say, hey, this is how the left can make the world better. You know, we know what we need to do. We need to have the green energy movement. We need to reduce the 
influence, um, if not completely break up the you know, transnational capitalism, global you know, banks, and so on that are just immiserating everybody. And so I have two thoughts related to that. The first is uh, a book I've been reading, just coincidentally, at the same time this episode came out, uh, that I would recommend to other listeners. It's called Utopia for Realists. It's by Rutger Bregman. Um, he's actually a Dutch author. Uh, it talks a lot about universal basic income and a couple of other ideas that uh, would be of interest to some people on the left. But even if this doesn't completely line up with what you think is most important, I think it's important to read what other people are saying about, hey, we can make the world better and this is how we can do it and this is how we can do it across the world. And the second thing I wanted to say is related to V's voicemail about um, focusing locally and your follow-up question about how can we integrate perhaps the local and global branches of progressivism. And, you know, it, it goes back to the old 70s slogan, think globally, act locally, which I think you alluded to in the show notes. My thought on that is it's about solidarity. Solidarity is probably the oldest concept for the international left. And it's the, the core of what the international left is about. And while he was specifically referring to sort of a military policy, uh, the one speaker was saying, you know, what could the left have been doing for the Syrian left before things uh, fell completely apart in that country? Could we have been picketing Syrian embassies? What sort of things could we have done to help them supply their struggle? And yes, maybe send over some partisan fighters. I don't know. I wasn't too sure about that part of it. But uh, my point is, the things we need to do will have a global impact, but the solutions are going to look different no matter where we are. So what's going to work in Philadelphia may not be what the best solution for central New York or for, you know, Wyoming and Utah or for, you know, the global South. Everybody's going to have a different solution, but the key for an international progressive movement is going to be that solidarity. How can I support the change that is needed in Brazil and how can Brazil support the change that is needed in the Midwest United States? What can we do to make these things happen locally while also showing each other we're all in this together? Because I think that kind of just moral support is so necessary when you're taking on a project this big. We're going up against two very well-coordinated opponents, the you know revanchist right that is currently springing up in Eastern Europe and increasingly in Western Europe and the United States, and the sort of Davos liberalism that is currently running the world. To, to borrow a phrase from Benjamin Franklin, if we don't all hang together, we will surely hang separately. So with that in mind, keep up the good work and solidarity forever.
Jay. This is Marguerite from Fortuna, California. And this is actually a comment about a show that happened months ago. Um, I'm always a little bit behind and I skip around a lot. But this has stuck in my mind and I think I need to at least let you know. I don't know if anyone else has talked about this yet. But at the end of one of the shows over the summer, I believe, you discussed minors and how you were in Canada and there's a minors highway and how maybe we should honor minors and coal miners for what they have done um, keeping the lights on and that they have this connection to the land and you made some similarities with Native American people um, indigenous people and it really bothers me because we don't honor anyone in this country the Smithsonian was built by um, the Smithsonian Castle was built by enslaved people we don't mention that many of our monuments were built by enslaved people we don't mention that we don't talk about the indigenous servants who died um, in the service of building, you know, our capital and other places. We don't talk about how all of this land was originally belonged to indigenous peoples and what lands we are on. And those are some of the things they are trying to do more so in Canada. And so I feel like there's a little bit more equality there. But it seems to me that why are we special treating or giving special privilege to the miners who do are predominantly white men when we haven't done that for any of the other people in the United States. So it has kind of really bothered me. And I think there is a big difference between protecting the land and taking resources out of it. Native and First Peoples are still dealing with the same problem. So I don't know if anyone else mentioned it. It was a problem I saw, and thanks for everything you do with the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just a quick response to Marguerite called in, uh, pointing out that we don't honor anyone, especially the people who deserve it in this country, uh, referring to minors, and slaves, indigenous people, and so on. And uh, so my response is that, I mean, hopefully it should be no surprise that I am at least equally in favor of honoring all of those who've been intentionally forgotten in, in this country that uh, Marguerite mentioned. The reason we don't mention them as a society shouldn't be a surprise either. It's called white supremacy. We talk about it a lot. So I'm completely on board with calling out the hypocrisy of society. Uh, I don't think I'm a hypocrite on that topic, though, uh, nor do I think that the lack of recognition for one worthy group justifies lack of recognition for another. So I agree, honoring people who traditionally protect the land is definitely different from honoring people who extract from it. Uh, I'm down with that. I'm not trying to draw exact parallels uh, by any stretch. But when pointing to those who have extracted from the land, I would point much more directly at the coal company owners, uh, the system of capitalism in general, uh, rather than the workers. You know, coal miners were made to be the tools of their own extraction in addition 
to the land and the coal underneath it. Their health has been extracted. Their communities have been extracted. Their wealth has been extracted. Uh, they were put into a position where digging their own grave either was made to sound like a good idea or at the very least it was presented as the only option available, uh, good or not. So yes, they were tools working on behalf of a destructive system, but they themselves were destroyed along with the land. Now, we certainly wouldn't blame the slaves who built the White House and the Capitol building for all the pro-slavery, uh, anti-black legislation that was passed in those buildings. Um, likewise, I don't blame the coal miners directly or, or not nearly as much for the damage that they did uh, as much as I blame the system that they were also victims of. And just like I wouldn't want monuments honoring the slaves to glorify slavery, I wouldn't want monuments to coal miners to glorify extractive capitalism. So ho hopefully that clears things up, at least uh, from where I'm coming from. If you have thoughts on any of this, as always, we'd love to hear it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the devices you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Bestofleft.com